Welcome to the Burnett Breakdown, where I, Hunter Burnett, keep up with the news so that you don't have to. This week, we're going to be talking about inflation, Amazon's union, and supply chains. On Friday, Amazon workers at a New York facility voted to establish its first union. This is the first Amazon union in the country. So Amazon uh, is the sec- is the nation's second largest employer and have- has been facing uh, these unionizing attempts for a little while now. Uh, in this one, the uh, workers at this uh, JFK8 facility in Staten Island uh, voted 2,654 to 2,131 in favor of organizing. That was according to the National Labor Relations Board. Now, the actual agreement that they come to, so the first union contract, uh, could actually take months, if not longer, for these JFK 8 workers to reach. Uh, so we won't actually know what the conditions or the you know agreed-upon conditions will be until that is released. Um, and this is part of a larger unionizing effort in not just Amazon, but also companies like Starbucks, but Amazon in particular. So this is just one of two votes at Amazon facilities in Staten Island alone. There's another warehouse in Staten Island, LDJ5, which employs 1,500 workers, and they will vote uh, the week of April 25th whether they want to unionize or not. There's also a company warehouse in Alabama that's actually the same company warehouse that was they had they already held an election to unionize. It was struck down pretty dramatically, uh, and uh, it was determined that uh, by, I think, the uh, National Labor Relations Board that Amazon had interfered too much in that election um, by campaigning or whatnot, and so they had to re-hold uh, that election and uh, that uh, election that they held this week was actually too close and is going to require a hearing to kind of determine the results. Now, I'm going to be honest, I really don't like unions. Just in general, I don't like them, and I don't like this unionizing attempt here. Um, the reason being is uh, that these so these employees, they want better working conditions and higher pay. And generally speaking, that's what all unions want. Okay, so... And they will, in order to get those, they will essentially collude with other workers in order to um, get those better working conditions and higher pay. That sounds great and sounds awesome. Um, But the issue is, is that these employees cannot be fired for even talking about unionizing. For talking, for organizing, or joining a union, you cannot be fired in the United States. Whether it's a private employee or not, you, a private uh, employer or not, you cannot be fired, according to the National Labor Relations Board website. And so, what that means is you have these this collusion happening. And, and by collusion, this is what I mean by that. So, say I w- want a job and I apply and interview at five different companies, and then I get a response from those five companies, and they all tell me that the pay will be eight dollars an hour, and then I come out. Later, and if I find out that they, those five companies all uh, basically heard that I was uh, interviewing and applying for those five jobs, and those five companies uh, talked, discussed, communicated, and decided that they all agreed not to pay me more than eight dollars an hour. Okay, that would obviously be wrong. That would that it gets rid of the competition aspect of the free market, and so we, we would obviously be against that. However, that's essentially what unions are. They are workers colluding with one another 
communicating with one another, and coming to agreements with one another not to accept any pay or any working conditions that they uh, deem as being unacceptable. Uh, again, this is one thing. You can do this if the employer can fire you, right? So if the employer, uh, if you talk about unionizing because you hate your life and you think the pay is, sucks and the working conditions suck, um, but you're a really good employee, then the employer, like Amazon, could you know agree to increase pay, increase working conditions, or if you're not a good worker, they can fire you. It's just part of the negotiating that happens in the workplace, not an official negotiation in terms of collective bargaining agreements, but you can demand higher pages and better working conditions. If you're a good employee, you'll get it. If you're not a good employee, you'll probably never get it and you'll leave, right? But if the company can't fire employees, then that limits the, uh, then that incentivizes these employees to form these unions because then that essentially protects them from being fired when it comes to union activities. Now, they can still be fired for, um, you know, not working or, you know, all sorts of different things uh, if it goes against you know, company policy, but not for unionizing. And so what happens is this collusion essentially artificially raises wages because, uh, just like uh, in my example, those employers, those companies were kind of artificially putting a ceiling on how much to pay me. That is what employees doing. They're saying we refuse to work for uh, less than this amount. And that amount is just arbitrary. It's not the market value. The market value would be whatever the company is willing to pay or whatever they can find out uh, somewhere else. And so it just uh, it creates this artificial floor, which just makes the entire company less efficient. Um, and so... Uh, this is this would even be more okay, right? The, the, to kind of even more why I hate unions is that a New York is not a right to work state. So what that means is a right to work state guarantees that no individual can be forced as a condition of employment to join or pay dues or fees to a labor union. So in other words, a company or a person that works for a company cannot be forced to join or pay dues to a labor union. Or a company cannot uh, say, you, we will hire you, but you have to join the union. New York is not a right-to-work state, meaning that those over 2,000 individuals who did not want to uh, join or did not want to unionize, those individuals may and probably will be forced to join, to join or pay the fees and dues associated with the labor union. Okay, so again, I would probably be more okay with unions if they didn't force employees to join them or to pay the dues. The idea is there, the reason why they justify it is they, they say that uh, the uh, union and the benefits from uh, bargaining uh, apply to all workers. And so, the, you know, like, so if if the pay, minimum pay offered by a company is raised, that benefits all workers. And so because it benefits all workers, all workers should have to pay for it. Um, so, this is uh, not a good thing. I, I maybe this is was more justifiable back in the heyday when you had people, you know, dying all the time and working conditions were actually deadly. But now, if you don't like your job, go somewhere else. If you don't want to work for Amazon because you think the work is too hard or they don't pay enough, go work somewhere else. And if you have valuable skills that they uh, that are highly sought out in the market, you'll find another job for more pay and a better lifestyle. For example, um, if you are a computer programmer or 
cloud programmer and you're looking for a job in Silicon Valley. I'm sure, and you're great at it, I'm sure you'll find a job. I'm sure you'll be paid well, and I'm sure you'll have nice benefits, right? Because those are highly sought-after skills. Unfortunately, uh, jobs like an Amazon warehouse, while it is still an admirable job, those skills are just not as sought out by companies, and so the pay is lower, and the working conditions, maybe not, you don't have as much bargaining power over them. Um, But again, if you want to sacrifice, you know, you want to have better uh, working conditions or you want to have higher pay, then you have to go do something about that. You can't expect, you can't demand that that your employer pay you more or uh, have better working conditions and then join a union and then can't be fired, right? So I just, I hate unions. I think they are bad for uh, the economy. I think they're bad for workers at the end of the day because uh, the market free exchange is what creates better standard of living for everyone. It benefits everyone. And so uh, I think involving or kind of getting rid of that competition aspect makes everything worse. And again, this is part of a larger unionizing effort in these large companies, like I mentioned, uh, not just Amazon, but also uh, Starbucks. And so uh, I don't like it, um, but it, it, and, and this will increase every, if this continues to occur throughout Amazon, this will increase the prices that you pay for Amazon, which again, hurts everyone. So maybe it benefits a couple of Amazon workers, but it hurts the entire country at large because now we're paying more for the goods we buy from Amazon and it hurts Amazon. It means that it limits their profitability, which limits the amount of people they can uh, pay and employee. And so again, this just is bad for everyone. And I I wish unionizing would just stop. In other news, uh, we got some more inflation numbers. So the personal consumption expenditures or the PCE price index increased 6.4% in February on an annual basis. The Commerce Department reported this, these numbers on Thursday. This is up from 6% a month earlier. Uh, This index last registered a figure this high in January 1982. Okay, so the reason why the PCE is kind of really sought after in terms of inflation is because it's the preferred index of the Fed. So what it it is, is a measure of prices that people in the United States pay for goods and services that does not include uh, energy and food. That's the core PCE index. Uh, so the reason that this is important is because, again, the, the Fed pays attention to this index and prefers this index as its measurements. And so this is high. Okay, we, we've talked about inflation again and again and again. It is probably the most pressing issue and will probably be the most pressing issue in the midterms in November. And it's just it's sky high right now. In 1982, we are actually coming out of a time of in- incredibly high inflation. So that's why all these numbers point back to that time. And essentially, we are seeing rates of inflation that we haven't seen in four decades, which is not ideal. Uh, There's nothing worse than inflation, economically speaking. Um, I mean, I don't know if that's actually true, but I mean, just thinking in terms of uh, how much it really impacts people, how bad it is for the economy, how pressing it is for people, and that's why people hate it so much and will go and vote with inflation on their mind. Uh, and so, and and again, there's nothing really the United States can do about it. There's nothing the government can really do about it except for stop spending money and get out of the economy's way and let the economy figure out supply chains, make things more efficient, drop prices, etc. Um, so, uh, I mean, the Fed can continue to raise rates, but I, I mean, I would argue that the Fed is partly responsible because they kept rates so low. 
Um, but again, uh, I'm not a Fed expert, but it just, you know, this is, uh, it's it's going to continue this this way. I don't see it getting much better unless the, and, and the issue is the Fed continues to raise rates as they plan to do and as they probably should do. But the more they raise rates and the quicker they do it, the more they uh, are going to, the more risky it is or the more likely it is that uh, the potential of a recession. And so that's the situation that the um, the Fed is in. Uh, and these numbers, again, are going to be really important, think, in November, but they're really just important to everyone in general because everyone uh, spends money and is now paying more for almost every good out there. And then on top of this, you also have the oil prices that we've been talking about in recent weeks. They're sky high right now. Um, and on Thursday, President uh, Biden announced that he was going to release 180 million barrels over the next six months from the United States Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is essentially just a reserve of oil that the United States has had since I believe it was the 70s, kind of after the oil embargo from the from OPEC. Uh, they decided to kind of have some on hand just in case, and so something like uh, the oil embargo, embargo and oil oil shortages that we saw in the 70s didn't happen again. This is actually the largest drawdown in history, uh, which is a pretty big deal. Now, this can be, re, uh, I don't know if refilled is the right word, but it can be refilled. Um, so it's not like you use these 180 million barrels and that's it, but it does take time for refilling. And in fact, something I read this week said it could take up to 7 to 10 years to refill up to levels that we once were at. Um, I hate this move. This, in the grand scheme of things, may provide some relief, maybe a little relief, but it's not going to provide the relief that is actually going to drop oil prices. What's going to drop oil prices is the production of oil increasing. And the production of oil increasing is not going to increase until these companies decide that they're going to increase production. It's a company decision. That's it. That's what's going to cause uh, uh, the prices to go down is if they produce more oil. And the reason why, as we talked about with Noah a few weeks ago, the reason why they don't want to produce oil is because that will require taking on debt. And that debt, uh, they will then have to repay probably at lower oil prices, uh, which is not ideal. And so they're avoiding that. They're being uh, not as risky as they were in the early 2010s. Uh, they're making wise business decisions. Uh, and if these oil prices remain high, I promise you, you will get higher production. Companies will absolutely not be able to resist the urge to make more money, and you will get higher production, which will decrease prices. At the same time, on Thursday, uh, President Biden also called on Congress to pass legislation imposing fees on oil and gas companies not uh, not making full use of their leases on federal lands. Uh, I think this is never going to happen, first of all, because Congress doesn't do anything anymore. Uh, so he can call on Congress to do whatever he wants. But also, I just think this is a really bad idea. I don't like that uh, the government telling oil and gas companies what they should and shouldn't do, particularly in terms of production. I think that's bad. I think the government, as I've said before, sucks at everything it does. And uh, kind of being economic actors is included in that. And so I don't like that he's calling for that. But I'm not too worried because I don't think it's going to happen. And now moving on to international news. Uh, so I, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal that I thought was really important and worth talking about. So this is uh, this article is talking about new data suggesting Mexican suppliers are gaining ground. So last year, large American manufacturers solicited six times as many chemicals, construction companies, and other goods from suppliers in Mexico in 2020. 
At the same time, Chinese suppliers received 9% less procurement bids. This data was from 30 of the biggest United States manufacturing customers with over $30 billion in annual revenues. This comes as companies have been talking about over and over again, re, quote, resetting their supply chains. Okay, so what is happening is essentially you're having these companies seeing the pandemic, seeing what happened with the pandemic, and seeing the fact that they're having supply chain issues now, and the market is working. The market is working by adjusting, right? So you hear all the time about, we need to become less reliant on China. We need to become less reliant on China. Well, we're going to become less reliant on China, and it's not going to have anything to do with the United States government. Instead, it's going to have everything to do with these companies realizing we shouldn't have our all of our manufacturing in China for, for a variety of different reasons. It's not just pandemic-related, and it's not just you know a patriotic duty to have jobs in the United States. Um, it is focused on what is reasonable. It's focused on uh, risks. It's focused on efficiency. And so what these companies are doing, are they are moving some of their production from China onto North American continent. Not just the North American continent, but also uh, the South American continent as well, as we'll talk about in a second. Um, but from 2020 to 2021, there was a four, or sorry, a 514 percent increase in Mexican supplier bids. At the same time, you had a 155 percent increase in Latin American supplier bids, and these uh, U.S. manufacturers also sought goods. Uh, from 26% fewer suppliers in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, so again, they are moving their suppliers from uh, areas that are, are you know, really impacted by these supply chain issues that we see, and they're moving them closer to home. Not at home, and that's an important note. They're not moving them home, which I think is fine. I don't think they have to move them to America. They should keep them where they, the goods are still relatively cheap, especially in, in Mexico. It's a great location. It's a great location because it's closer, right? So uh, goods from Mexico to get them to the United States, guess what you don't have to go through? Ports. So you don't have to use ships. You don't have to use docks. You don't have to use all of the uh, areas causing uh, the supply chain issues that we see right now. So, and also in Mexico, you have, uh, a, a, you know, free trade agreements. It's not NAFTA anymore. I forgot what it's called, but it's essentially NAFTA, just kind of with a different title so that Donald Trump could say that he got rid of NAFTA. But um, it's essentially still a free trade agreement between the United States and Mexico, which means those goods are not are now going to be under those agreements, I assume. Um, this is largely not only to minimize risk. Well, actually, it is to minimize, minimize risk in the fact that companies are essentially uh, moving from one to two suppliers of uh, their goods to three to four. That doesn't seem like a lot, but think about, you know, you're doubling the amount of suppliers that you're getting your goods from. Again, that is all risk assessment. That is, you know, so that they don't see this, uh, these supply chain you know, chains happen, issues happen again. Uh, this is why the free market works. This is why uh, the free market's the greatest thing ever, because companies adjust. They, they adjust out of self-interest. They adjust not because the government wants them to. They adjust um, because they want to make money. Right, so th this idea that we need to put tariffs on these com these countries for you know national security reasons, it's real. I don't really buy them because if there are really national security reasons, like these countries could cut off suppliers, you know, so, like so say we have a certain amount of steel is a big one. You know, China. We get a lot of our steel from China. If China wanted to cut off that production, then we wouldn't have any access to it. That is true, but if that were a high risk, companies also wouldn't put wouldn't uh, outsource to China to build steel they would probably move that to another country whether that's India or 
um, the Philippines or Indonesia or Vietnam, um, they or Mexico in this case, like they're going to move their suppliers when there's a risk. Uh, the, the issue is the risk hasn't been that high, and what COVID revealed is that the risks were actually higher than they thought, and so they're adjusting. This is why the free market's great. This is why I love it, and this is what I've been saying. This is why we don't need tariffs. This is why we should let the free market and free trade do what, what it will do, and companies will figure out the rest, and it will be better off for we will all be better off because of it. And so we should encourage that. We should get rid of tariffs. We should do all of what we can to encourage this free trade activity. And then the war in Ukraine is still going on. Uh, Russia, however, has shifted its strategy to uh, kind of focus more on the south slash the Donbass region. So the Donbass region's in the east, uh, and then uh, the south of Ukraine is where they're focusing their attention now. Um, well, I mean, that's what it's our information again is limited um that's going to be uh, pretty important because uh they so they started in the invasion kind of from both the north and the south uh, the south is where they have had much more of their success um they have uh you know really made some made up some ground in the south whereas in the north uh they haven't been as successful um that you know kiev is in the north and so it has been a focus of the ukrainians to make sure that they can protect and defend that region and so they the russians have not had that much success in the north but in the south they have and now they're shifting uh, you know from all reports that we can find uh, shifting their strategy to the south to the donbas region which is that separatist region that was already claimed by russian separatist uh and, and so we may see Russia you know have a little bit more success if they're you know going to lean into the areas that they're already having success in um, also uh, on Friday Ukraine actually attacked a Russian oil depot depot in Russia so they flew across the border with helicopters and they launched rockets into this oil depot which I believe I could be mistaken in this but I believe that is the first attack on Russian land since World War two. Uh, which is pretty wild. So, you know, we're talking about 80 years of no attack or nothing on Russian or Soviet you know, land. And uh, the Ukrainians pulled that off. Which, and it shows us that the Ukrainians still have a lot of air power. Uh, again, the Russians were supposed to grab air control, uh, control of the skies like immediately within hours, if not days of invading. And they still a month over a month later don't have that kind of control. Uh, and so that's a really big deal. And then on what we've also talked about is the U Ukrainian refugees. Uh, last time we talked about it, uh, last week or the week before, uh, it was three and a half million Ukrainians that had left. Now it's up to four U million Ukrainians that have left Ukraine. So that is those who have left the country. Again, that is that we have a displacement, which is, you know, in the double digit uh, millions. Uh, this is four million that have left the country and gone to other countries, largely Poland, largely countries like Moldova and those Eastern Bloc countries. Uh, and so uh, that is going to continue to increase, I, I would assume. And we are going to continue uh, to make sure uh, we uh, watch those numbers to see uh, what the impact of those numbers are, the impact, and like I've mentioned, in politics in the rest of Europe, but also uh, the kind of the inspiration and the motivation to fight for the Ukrainians. And then finally, uh, you have Shanghai uh, shutdown. So the Chinese city of Shanghai uh, has been shut down, and this is part of the Chinese zero COVID policy. So there was an Omicron outbreak that started about a month ago in Shanghai, and the Chinese government has essentially decided that they're not going to 
do uh, kind of live with the risks of uh, COVID. They're going to try and eradicate every last case. And so they have shut down the city of Shanghai. The majority of districts are, of the districts in Shanghai are under lockdown. You do have some essential businesses that are allowed to operate, but those essential businesses are deemed uh, those that are deemed essential by the government. And this is a big deal because this is a city of 26 million people. It's a huge manufacturing city in China. One, I think, the major manufacturing city in China. And so there are some manufacturing still uh, operating, um, but even those, I don't know how longer, much longer those will be operating because there's been reports that some factory workers are actually sleeping on the floor. The reason why they're doing this is essentially it is kind of like the bubble uh, that a lot of uh, sports leagues have done where they you know, have all their players and coaches and everyone uh, stay in one place and don't leave. And with doing that, uh, they aren't, you know, allegedly not uh, uh, exposed to uh, COVID on the uh, outside. And so this bubble system is essentially what they're doing, except with factories. And so instead of leaving, workers are just sleeping on the floor. Uh, that is not sustainable long term. Uh, and at the same time, uh, it, says it matters for supply chains because this is the world's busiest container port uh, in Shanghai. It handles more than four times the port of Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, we've seen in the last two and a half weeks a five-fold increase in the number of ships waiting in the port. Uh, so this is uh, not good news with supply chains that have already be been uh, strained, that have already been beaten uh, that are already struggling now you have one of the you have the world's largest uh, and busiest container port uh, now essentially facing these uh, shutdowns so that doesn't mean it's shut down uh, but just imagine how much more inefficient it is going to be now that uh, the entire city around it is uh, shut down uh, so this is a really big deal. Uh, if inflation has already been high because of lack of supply, this is not going to help the case whatsoever. Uh, you're going to still see shortages. And it's probably only going to get worse. Uh, so again, the economic conditions and going into the election in November, the midterms, is not looking rosy. Uh, for, and that is not good news for the party in power, the Democratic Party. Uh, and it's not good news for just average Americans as they will probably pay more for everything. And then finally, on to the breakdown of the breakdown, where I talk about my newsletter, The Burnett Breakdown, that you can, can subscribe to and read on uh, Substack. Uh, so this week, I talked about uh, the Republican Party and what I deem as the platitudes that I keep hearing more and more from the Republican Party. Uh, so I start by talking about uh, Senator Sass coming out and saying in a statement that he will not be voting for Katanji Brown-Jackson. And in that statement, he basically lays out pretty clearly she's not an originalist judge. Uh, she is qualified. She is uh, amply qualified. She is smart. She knows the law, but she is not an origin originalist judge. Originalism meaning uh, to in order to uh, interpret and rule on a, a statute, you have to go back to the original public meaning at the time. Uh, and so uh, he says, you know, I can't vote in favor. I can't vote to confirm uh, because she's not an originalist judge. And she lays out, so he, he laid out specific cases that he thought showed that she was not an originalist judge. Um, and so in, just in general, he uh, displayed himself with grace. He displayed himself with, uh, you know, respect for uh, Judge Jackson, uh, but and, and, and was clear about, and, and detailed about why he disagreed with her judicial philosophy and why he was not voting to confirm. And this stands in stark contrast to the rest of the Republican Party. So I mentioned in the piece that 
I have been uh, going to uh, my county's Republican meetings, uh, monthly meetings when I can, and uh, we have there's a current uh, House district is up for grabs. Uh, my current House district up for grabs uh, is up for grabs. So I have uh, I've heard plenty of uh, these uh, Republicans uh, in running for the House seat. Uh, you know their stump speeches and things like that. And uh, I live in a very 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 Trumpy county. Uh, and so uh, they are kind of appealing to the base of the base. I mean, it is as base of the uh, Republican Party as you can get where I live and these meetings are. And just getting to hear what they think the base wants to hear. And it is essentially a bunch of platitudes. Now, I will just I didn't I don't know if I emphasize this enough in the piece. I understand that the Democratic Party speaks in platitudes. Right. So I mentioned those signs that are like, you know, in this house, we believe science is real and love is love. That is nothing but platitudes. I get that. Um, you know, and, and I'm the uh, a lot of the Democratic programs that they want to put in place are nothing but platitudes because you start getting into details and they realize that they disagree on things. Um, but I want to focus on the Republican Party because they are the party that claims to be conservative. And so uh, and, and I hear these Republican candidates and all I hear are things like fight, right? This this fight the left, fight the, you know, big tech, fight this, the woke everything, fight, 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 fight. But they don't ever specify what they mean by fight. Okay. Do you mean take up arms? Do you mean pass laws that are unconstitutional? Do you mean pass laws that are go against the uh, liberal nature of the United States? Do you mean, and by liberal, I mean classical liberal. Uh, do you, like, what do you mean by fight? Because how you fight and what exactly you're fighting matters. Uh, if you don't specify, then I, you, you tell me nothing. And the other one's America first, right? I think all of my policy positions are America first. I think uh, America is uh, first and is, is my priority. And I think that its interests take priority over any other interest of any other country. That's why I think we should have kept troops in Afghanistan. That's why I have an aggressive foreign policy. It's why I uh, want to have free trade because that's better for all Americans. Like, this is why, but I assume that a lot of these America First people would disagree with me on there because, uh, you know, America First means nothing until you specify specific policy positions. And so I would encourage, if you're a Republican, please hold your Republican politicians' feet to the fire and make them get specific. Make them say, you know, ask them, talk to them, or, or, or talk to Republicans and say, you know, what exactly do you mean by that? When you talk about fighting the left, what do you, how exactly? Not Don't, you know, give me more platitudes, but what policy positions, what do you want to pass, what laws do you want to put in place? We have to start doing that, or we're going to continue to get these platitudes. And, and at the end of the day, they're basically telling us, you're not smart enough to listen to a reasoned argument so i'm just going to give you this phrase that means nothing and expect you to just you know nod along smile and vote for me and with that that is the end of the podcast this week please like subscribe comment share do all that you can do to make this podcast go far and wide and i hope that you will return again next week